Welcome to another episode in the Search for Racial Equity series, a global forum offering an in-depth study and dialogue of racial equity and justice. We amplify the most authentic and powerful voices of our time in the racial justice movement while using our global platform to create safe spaces for the most important and timely discussions. As the world continues to fight for racial justice, many of us wonder the same thing. How can we make a real, lasting difference? Meaningful change often begins with meaningful conversation. To contribute to that dialogue and our commitment to racial equity and inclusion, Google has launched a weekly series on our Talks at Google YouTube channel and here in podcast form that amplifies some of the most authentic and influential voices of our time and this global movement. The Search for Racial Equity series hosts authentic, open discussions that reckon with the structural and systemic racism Black people have experienced over generations. To find the video of this talk and all others from the series, please visit g.co slash talks at Google slash racial equity. In this episode, we hear from American businessman, comedian, and television producer Byron Allen. Byron is the founder, chairman, and CEO of the U.S. media company, Entertainment Studios Allen Media Group. Earlier this year, he published an op-ed called Black America Speaks, America Should Listen, demanding that America fulfill its promises to all its citizens by guaranteeing that everyone be granted access to opportunity, a good education, jobs, bank loans, human and civil rights. In this talk, Googler Corey DeBrowa, VP of Global Communications and Public Affairs, discusses with Byron how we can come together to create one America. I'm Corey DeBrowa, VP of Global Communications and Public Affairs at Google. Today, I'm fortunate to be speaking with Byron Allen, American businessman, comedian, and TV producer. Byron's the founder, chairman, and CEO of the US media company Entertainment Studios, Allen Media Group. With a growing library of over 5,000 hours of content, Entertainment Studios Allen Media Group provides programming to traditional and emerging distribution platforms, including more than 1,400 television stations across the United States. We're honored that Byron is joining us today in the search for racial equity, and I'm personally thrilled to be in conversation with him to better understand what we need to do to make one America a reality. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Byron Allen. Thank you, Corey. Wow, that's a better introduction than my mother gives me. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what you get when you come on our show. You get a better right. I love it. I love it. I'm gonna let her know she has to work overtime now. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for having me on. This is uh, really an honor, and I really appreciate you, you know, giving us uh, an opportunity to chat. Well, I'm I'm delighted to have you. So. Uh, Let's just jump right into it. I, I think that, uh, first of all, it's great to have you here. And I'd like to maybe start our conversation at the beginning. So I have to be honest with you. I'm kind of resisting the urge to ask you to go back in time to 19-year-old you and make some very prescient post office jokes uh, back in the day on Midnight Special. Uh, I, I did catch that. It was very funny. Um, and you know, one of the stories that I've learned about you uh, coming into this is that you were a bit of a, a prodigy, that as a teenager, uh, you were already earning an, a living in the entertainment industry in Jimmy Walker's writing room, which included people like a very young David Letterman, kind of fresh to uh, Tinseltown, Jay Leno, supposedly living out of his car. That This is pretty heady stuff. I certainly wasn't doing any of that as a 14-year-old. I could probably barely tie my shoes. So I, I'd love to hear a little more about how you came 
to the entertainment industry and maybe what formative experiences sort of pointed you in that direction? Well, first of all, I'm very blessed. Uh, you have to go back to the beginning. My mother got pregnant with, with me when she was 16 years old and she had me 17 days after her 17th birthday. I always tell everybody I have two high school diplomas because I've gone across the stage twice. <laughs> uh, and and if, you, if, you, if you looked at, at that situation on paper uh, and you said, look at this, you've got this, uh, this black teenage girl, you know, giving birth to this black baby in April of 1961, no one would have bet on their outcome uh, being what it is today, which is one of the reasons why our, our country, America, is so great. You know, that, that's, it's, it's not where you start. It's, it's the opportunity that's afforded you. And that's so key uh, to the fiber of our country. And uh, I was really fortunate. My mother uh, just, you know, not only is beautiful, but brilliant. And she and I uh, uh, had a unique journey. And I think that, that one of the pivotal moments is it was in April of 68. I was about to turn seven years old. I was in the, in the middle of the street playing what I call urban baseball and using a hubcap as, as my home plate and my neighbor's cars as first, second, and third base. And all of a sudden, my mother and, and, my, and my grandmother started screaming on the porch. They were just, just unbelievably out of control and just pain, screaming. They killed Martin. They killed Martin. They killed my Martin Luther King Jr. And the next thing I know, I was looking down the barrel of a tank and the military had taken over my neighborhood and troops were walking on the lawns with rifles and bayonets and German shepherd dogs. And, you know, when you're looking, you look down the barrel of a tank, you never forget it. And they were very clear, get off the streets and get in the house. And I remember running into the house as fast as I could. Uh, and I, and I was like, what is going on? And they were like, they killed Martin Luther King. And, and, and I said, why? And they said, because they hate us. They hate us and they'd rather kill us than, you know, give us civil rights and to treat us fairly. And I just remember the conversation. It was very painful. And for me, it, it's when I lost my, my, my innocence. I felt like at that moment, I became a child of war, April of 68, when they murdered Martin Luther King. And, and I remember looking out the window and smoke had taken over the, the entire you know city uh, because of the riots and riots broke out in over a, a hundred cities when Martin Luther King was murdered mm -hmm. and uh, I knew things I knew then things were very different and I and I felt like you know we were at war you we were literally you know looking out the window and their troops and there's there's the community burning up and a lot of pain and a lot of anger uh, a turning point for my mother and I, we came to Los Angeles for a two week vacation. And uh, I remember going to the movie theaters, uh, movie theater, and, uh, and they, it, I was sitting there, I was probably seven years old, and they had a, they had a trailer, a movie trailer for 101 Dalmatian from the Disney company. And I came home and my mother said, well, do you want to go back to, do you want to go back to Detroit and leave Los Angeles? And I said, no. And she never asked me why. But if she had asked me why, I would have told her because I didn't want to miss 101 Dalmatians coming to the theater down the street. <laughs> so, That's a very honest answer. It's good. You know, a very honest answer. So, 
because of 101 Dalmatians, we ended up staying. And uh, my mother ended up, uh, you know, getting a job at the uh, at the Salvation Army. And I would go to work with her and I watched her. You know, I said, what, what's going on here? She says, these are families that are not doing well. And, um, you know, my mother and I at the time weren't even doing that well. We were sleeping on the sofas and the floors of a lot of good friends and neighbors and relatives. And that went on for a couple of years. And but I remember being with her at the Salvation Army and watching uh, them give out money and give out assistance and food and help them find shelter. And then she ended up saying, hey, I'm going to go back school. I'm going to go to college. That was the pivotal moment. I didn't even know what that meant. I'm going to go to college. Like you're out of high school. You're free. Keep going. (laughs) Free. You go run and uh, you you don't have to touch another book. And uh, she ended up going to UCLA and uh, she ended up getting her master's degree in cinema TV production. And education is everything. Education is everything. It, It took a it took our lives to another parallel. And little did I know, you know, hey, I'm gonna go back to school with that man. And because she was at UCLA and she was working on her master's in cinema TV production, she went to NBC and asked for a job. And they said no. And she asked a very important question uh, before she turned around and walked out the door. She said, let me ask you something. Do you have an intern program? And they said, no. And then she asked the question that changed our lives forever. She said, will you start one with me? And they said, yes. And that was a game changer. Yes, we will start one with you. That's pretty amazing. That's a lot of, that's a lot of chutzpah on mom's part. Yeah. Thinking like that. Right. And just that question and just how it changed the trajectory of our lives that, you know, opening up that door, you, you have a, you see it firsthand, this little teenage black girl who has this little baby. And you say, okay, let's get in here and make sure you get a proper education, right? And now, okay, you know, you can't, we can't hire you, but if you, if you have that fire in your belly that you're willing to work here for free, we're going to go ahead and give you that opportunity too. And she started there as an intern and she, be, you know, she was a tour guide as well and she gave tours and then later went on to the publicity department, working in publicity on shows like Little House in the Prairie and Sanford's Son and Chico on the Man, and I used to go. So I went out there with her because we could not afford childcare. And I used to wait for my mother to get off work and I would just go from studio to studio to studio. And that exposure helped me see myself differently because I was, up until that point, you know, I couldn't wait to go to Ford Motor Company with my daddy, uh, who worked there for over 30 years. And I couldn't wait to go to Great Lake Steel with my granddad, who worked there for over 30 years. I couldn't wait to get a uniform and a lunch pail, and we could drive to the factory together. And so when I went there with my mom, I saw a different factor, a different factor. It was a content factor because I would go watch Johnny Carson tape The Tonight Show. And then I'd go across the hall and i watch Red Fox do Sanford and Son. Then i go across the hall again, i watch Jack Albertson and Freddie Prince do Chico and the Man. And then I would go watch Flip Wilson do his show and Bob Hope do his specials. And I would watch a, a young local newscaster do sports named Brian Gumble. 
and a young local weatherman give the weather named Pat Sajak. And I thought this is a great way to go through life, making people laugh, entertaining people, informing people, because I was watching them do talk shows, sitcoms, game shows, soap operas, news, whatever it was. And I just thought, this is phenomenal. And I thought, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to make people laugh. And to have that, that, that epiphany at such a young age really gave me an advantage that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And uh, I started performing at the comedy store. I started performing when I was about 12, 13 years old. So, you know, I'll never forget Gladys Knight and the Pips had a summer show. And I think it was either summer of 74 or 75. And I was just sitting there watching them do the summer show. And I'm just waiting for my mom to get off work. And they had a comedian on. And the comedian was hilarious. And I went to his dressing room and I said, you know, I want to be a comedian like you. And he said, okay, great. And he said, go to the comedy store. I said, oh, the comedy store? I thought that's where you go to buy jokes or something. You know, a supermarket for comedy. <laughs> and I said, no problem. And uh, I'll go there. I guess I'll buy some jokes and then we'll get going from there. It's like a supermarket, right? And, uh, and I go, by the way, what's the name of that sitcom that you said that's going to come on in the fall? He goes, welcome back, Cotter. And I go, right, well, thank you, Mr. Gabe Kaplan. I really appreciate it. So he was an unknown comic. He had just per- appeared on the show. Uh, on the Gladys Knight show, and he told me to go to the comedy store. I went to the comedy store, and I went on stage my first time. It was a Monday night. It was a tryout night. Uh, and it, and I remember getting there at 9 in the morning in, in, a summer, in the summer of 74, 75, and I just sat on the curb from about 9 a.m. until they opened the front door at 7 o'clock, 7.30. That's when they would open the door and let you sign, sign in. And I just sat on the curb and just wrote jokes and and just watched the cars go by and just kept writing and waiting for them to open the doors. And, and I went to the front door and, and I, and Mitzi Shore, God bless her soul, was yeah. owner. She was sitting at the front door and I walked up and she said, I said, ma'am, I'd like to go on stage tonight. And she goes, wow. She goes, how old are you? And I said, I'm, I'm 14. She goes, 14. She goes, oh my God, I'll lose my liquor license. You can't come in here. She goes, I'll tell you what you do. She goes, you stay in the back in the parking lot. And uh, and uh, when I'm ready to put you on, I'll have somebody come get you and they'll put you on and then you leave immediately. And, and then she goes, and she goes, and here are two drink tickets because they paid you with drink tickets. And she goes, whatever you do, when you go to that bar, you do not get any alcohol. I said, no problem. I will not uh, drink any alcohol. So I went on stage and I kept going every Monday night. And this one guy came up to me, he's a very you know, nice guy, and he says, hey, who wrote those jokes? And I said, uh, I did. He goes, well, they're funny. I go, well, that's the intent. And he goes, I go, what's your name? He goes, Wayne Klein. He goes, I was said, nice to meet you, Wayne. He goes, listen, I know somebody might like those jokes, and maybe you can write with us or something. I go, sure. So I, I give Wayne my phone number, and like a week or two later, I get this phone call. And, his, and the, the guy on the phone says, can I speak to Byron? And I go, speaking. And he goes... This is Jimmy J.J. Walker. And I go, whoa, right? And Jimmy at this point, and he's like hotter than the sun because of good times, Mr. Dynamite. And he says, my man, Wayne Klein, says you're funny. And if my man, Wayne Klein, says you're funny, then you must be funny. And I go, oh, okay, tell Wayne I said hello. Right? Tell Wayne I said hello. He goes, 
So I wanted to see if you wanted to come write with me and Wayne and some more of my writers and maybe we can create some funny together. I go, sure, let me ask my mom. And he goes, oh my God, he has to ask his mom. Look at this guy. <laughs> and he called me right after a writer's meeting. So I didn't know this. So all these guys were sitting in his apartment and they started laughing at me. And one of them goes, oh, tell his mom not to worry. We'll have some cookies and milk for him. Right. So I asked my mom if I can go. And she takes me over to Jimmy's apartment on it uh, and drops me off. And I walk into Jimmy's apartment. And uh, I'm and, and in his apartment is Jimmy, Wayne Klein, Jay Leno, who uh, was sleeping in his car off the 405. Uh, David Letterman, who had just driven out from Indianapolis in a red pickup truck because he drove out in a pickup truck because he wasn't sure he was going to be able to make it. He wanted to get back in his pickup truck and drive back to Indianapolis. He was flipped out that he had quit his job as a weatherman, thought it was the worst mistake he had ever made in his life because he had it made as the weatherman in Indianapolis. And it was Marty Nadler who went on to write and produce Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days and Jeff Stein, Wayne Dugan, who went on to do Mr. Belvedere. And I was 14 and these guys were in their mid-20s. And Jay and Dave was getting 200 bucks a, a week to write jokes for Jimmy Walker. And I got 25 bucks a joke. And I, and I was elated because I had a paper route. And my paper route, I was throwing the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. And I had to throw two newspapers to make a penny. I was getting half a penny a paper. And I would throw, and I, and I had folks who were like, no, you need to put this newspaper on my porch, not my step. Right. So I had that route. So I was getting off my bike every every delivery and putting it on the front door. And I thought this is the greatest thing ever. I have to throw new two newspapers to make a penny. Somebody just gave me 25 bucks to do something I would do for free. And to this day, I have that check for 25 bucks framed and hanging in my office because I went to my mom and I said, what is this? Jimmy gave me a check for 20. What is this? And my mom said, it's a check. I go, what am I supposed to do with this? She says, well, you're going to go cash it, and then you're going to get $25. I go, cash it where? She goes, at a bank. I go, really? Why? And I said, I don't want to cash it. I want to to keep this check forever. I don't want the money. Look, this says that I can make it. And uh, she said, just go to Jimmy and ask him to give you the check after he gets it back. And I went and asked him one day after a writer's meeting, he gave it back to me. And it's still framed and hanging in my office. That that check for 25 bucks and the other one was Bud Friedman. Bud Friedman, uh, who started the improv. He He came to me one day and he says, what are you doing New Year's Eve? I was 16 or 17 years old. And I go, what do you think I'm doing New Year's Eve? I'm like, I'm 16, buddy. <laughs> 17, he, goes, he goes, I want you to perform New Year's Eve at the Improv. I go, okay, great. I don't have anything to do. So I go and I perform New Year's Eve at the Improv. And like a month later, he walked up to me and handed me an envelope. And I go, what is this? And I opened it up and it was a check for $25 to perform. And, I, and somebody, I was like, Wow. I'm like, I'm literally prepared to do this for free for the rest of my life. Write for free, perform for free. Thank you for the 25 bucks. And both checks to this day hang in my office. The first 25 bucks for writing a joke and the first 25 bucks for performing and, and being paid in front of a live audience. So it's, it's extraordinary, Byron, to hear you talk about this because 
you make it sound like it's so intuitive as a teenager to like just write some jokes that people might use on national TV or, hey, I can just get up. Anybody I've ever known who's done stand up describes it as a terrifying high wire act. And I, it, you're not making it sound that way at all. And I just like there's something about being born to the task here that strikes me about the stories that you're telling, because this is not 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 a lot of people are having this experience in their teenage years. They're just trying to figure out how to get to the next class or how to get out of school or whatever it is they're thinking about. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the process, you know, and uh, I would read about all these great comedians and they would be at the top of their game. And all of them, almost without exception, said, I enjoyed it more trying to get there than once I got there. Because when they got there, it was a whole nother skill set that was needed. Mm-hmm. And along the way, it was just pure creativity and pure love of what you do. And I was just really fortunate. Uh, just enjoy the journey. And I was, you know, I never had stage fright ever. I was in shock when I read like, Elvis Presley used to get upset and get nervous before he went on stage. Like this is one of the world's greatest entertainers. I look forward to it, you know, just being on stage, you know, early on, it's just like being with an audience. It's just, for me, it's like being with a friend. You just be honest, be open, be transparent. And I was so fortunate, the things I saw, you know, like I watched Richard Pryor um, come to the comedy store and it was such an unbelievable event in my life to watch him show up. And he had had these albums that he had done, Richard Pryor, uh, is it something I said, and blah, blah, blah. And when he showed up at the comedy store, it was like a rock star. Like I watched full grown men look at him and start crying. (laughs) They loved him so much. And just like, oh my God. And they would recite his routines verbatim verbatim from his albums. They just like loved him, like a hit song they would recite it. And he would walk on stage and he would give a standing ovation, this is at the comedy store, for 10 minutes before he said a word, a word. And then after he got everybody to sit down, he started performing and he wouldn't do the material from the albums. He was doing new material material. and he he was bombing and he would bomb for like 30 minutes and then he would go off stage and I couldn't believe it. And he would go on stage night after night and bomb. And I'm like, hey, Richard, are you okay? Right? Because I'm watching him. He said, yeah. He goes, you're only as good as you dare to be bad. You have to take risks. And I watched him bomb night after night after night. And then all of a sudden, this routine started to work. That routine started to work. And the next thing you knew, he recorded his stand-up for 90 minutes, Richard Pryor Live. Mm -hmm. And almost without exception, every comedian considers it the greatest stand-up piece of masterpiece of all times. And it was how he did that. Like he just, he was willing to fail night after night. And then on the other end, within about, I don't know, six months to a year of just working through it, it was just pure genius. And that became the standard for being a comedian in America for 
or even in the world for decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard Eddie Murphy talk about that being oh, like a- Oh, absolutely. That was the blueprint to stand on that stage for 90 minutes. The way he laid that out and to watch him do that, it was just one of the greatest experiences. So I'm just really fortunate. I'm really blessed. You know, when I think about Detroit, you know, my father, unfortunately, he recently passed away in December of a massive heart attack. And I, you know, went back to Detroit in January and I look at, uh, I look at the environmental injustice, uh, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in, you know, Marathon Oil has a 250 acre refinery, you know, less than a mile from my childhood home. My elementary school has been torn down, Jeffries, because of environmental issues. It's nothing more than slosh and mud and chemicals. And most people that I grew up with in my neighborhood do not get to the age of 40 or 50, and certainly not 60, without serious, serious health issues. And when I went back for my dad's funeral, and we were driving around because I wanted to show my wife and kids my neighborhood that I spent my first seven years of my life. What I noticed is that quite often when I would go on tour and perform throughout the country, and I've seen every inch of this country, I noticed that unlike a lot of places in America, we didn't have a McDonald's or Burger King on every corner. So how bad are things when McDonald's and Burger King can't survive on every corner like most of America. Mm-hmm. But what we did have on every corner, what we do have on every corner in Detroit, CVS Pharmacy. And I said to somebody, what happened to Dairy Queen? What happened to McDonald's? Mm-hmm. Like every corner is like a pharmacy. A lot of sick people around here. Yeah. Well, Byron, I can relate to your, your journey uh, on a personal level, I grew up in a part of Long Beach that is as much Compton uh, as it is Long Beach and grew up in public housing, uh, had maybe a similar kind of awakening, like as you described, where watching your parent uh, pay for groceries with food stamps, where you sort of realize that, you know, not everybody in your school, not everybody in your friend circle is in that environmental condition. Uh, and, you know, I come from a family of educators. My dad was a teacher. And so thinking about the kind of justice issues that you're touching upon now, economic justice, racial justice, environmental justice, um, Long Beach, California, as you know, as being in Southern California, it's dotted with all kinds of petroleum paraphernalia, right? I mean, half that city are, you know, oil pumps. Uh, and, you know, you do get a sense as you described that, you know, people in your neighborhood growing up like that are having a profoundly different experience than the rest of America. It is sort of this idea that you touch upon in your op-ed of of two Americas, you know, and I I wonder, uh, just to turn this into a a question, you know, how, how did those kinds of experiences affect your comedy, your writing, the things that you were bringing that were uniquely you to this endeavor that you had, you know, I, I would have to think that those things are, are very intertwined with one another. You, you can't touch the real Byron Allen without having exposure to some of that kind of uh, upbringing or, or those experiences. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, great question. I, I think it, it impacts everybody. Uh, it impacts us as a nation. 
uh, when you see that environmental injustice. But at the time when you're when you're born and you're raised in it, you don't realize what's going on. You know, I've had the good fortune of leaving and coming back and saying, this isn't right. You should be able to breathe. And a lot of folks in my neighborhood back in Detroit have respiratory issues. Flint, Michigan is not an anomaly. Flint, Michigan is happening many places throughout this country and primarily in black and brown neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. That's a part of what I call the genocide that's occurring in America, inside of America. That's a part of the genocide. You know, um, what's unique about our relationship in terms of black America and America is that we, as, as black Americans, we were brought here for economic reasons. And that's a very different relationship from anybody else in this country, anybody else. We were brought here uh, to make America wealthy. We were brought here to make white people wealthy. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. As a matter of fact, they used to judge the wealth of a white person by how many slaves they owned. Not homes, not land, how many slaves? The stock market, trading slaves. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's about slaves. And when we were enslaved, we were an asset, major assets. And the moment we were emancipated, the moment we were freed, we went from being an asset to a liability in America's minds, mm-hmm. a liability. So now I brought you here to make me rich, but now that you've been emancipated, you are competition. Mm-hmm. And you are asking for a slice of the great American economic pie. Yeah. And now you are a liability. And that is the moment They said, we must murder you. We must lynch you. We must incarcerate you. We must blow up and burn down your towns because we didn't bring you here to share this great economic pie. And that's when the genocide started. And what people forget You know, we have the Civil Rights Act of 1866, Section 1981. Black America was prosperous right after the end of slavery. We were elected officials. Our towns were flourishing, Black Wall Street. And it was that that created rage, that success, that progress, that prosperity, created rage in certain white people who said, we are now going to introduce Jim Crow. And we're going to shut you down. Now, we are the only ones where it has been systematically put in place to eliminate us and commit genocide on a regular basis. And when you saw what happened to George Floyd, that was one aspect of it. It's that's the way it's been since day one. Mm-hmm. 
And Coretta Scott King was a friend of mine. And because I, you know, she said to me, Byron, look, as black people, we've had four major challenges. Number one, end slavery. Number two, end Jim Crow, which I think was more damaging than slavery because that's when the genocide kicked in. She said, number three, achieve civil rights. And then she choked up. And number four, the real reason they killed my Martin, achieve economic inclusion. Mm-hmm. Because what people don't really think a lot about sometimes is that people think, well, Martin Luther King was killed because he was pushing for civil rights. Well, April of 68, he had already pretty much achieved that. They killed him because he was now starting to do the poor people's march and he was starting to speak out on behalf of poor, mainly poor white people. That's right. And he was going to deliver half a million poor people, mainly poor white people, to the nation's capital, the poor people's march, to say, hey, we can't have a scenario where we don't have a bottom, where people can be homeless, people don't have health care, people don't have access to an education, blah, blah, blah. They killed him right there because he was now uniting the poor voices of America. And that is the fourth and final chapter. And that's what Martin Luther King taught us over 50 years ago, that there are two Americas and two Americas will not survive. We must have one America. We have two Americas. One America has access to opportunity and privilege and the other one does not. And you can't have an America that doesn't have access to a proper education, healthcare, jobs, opportunity, mentorship, and two Americas will fail. And we are now watching the two Americas fail. Mm -hmm. And we, as Americans today, must dedicate ourselves to achieving one America. And the one thing I would say that's different today than it was over 50 years ago, when the great Martin Luther King Jr. gave us this prophecy, was that white America was enough at that time to compete. But today, white America is not enough to compete globally. Mm-hmm. And that's something that white America needs to really think about, really pause, and really understand that white America is no longer enough to compete globally. So what does that mean? Well, 50 years ago, you didn't have emerging nations. You didn't have you right. know, these other nations coming along. But today, you have half the women in this country, half living at or below the poverty line. And if the women fail, if the mothers fail, so will the children. Okay, So that math doesn't work where you have half the women, right? Now, you have a big issue. Here's the issue. America, we're only about 4% of global population out of almost whatever, 8 billion people. 4%. So now you've got countries like China who has over 40 million kids in college. Yes. Mastering STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Well, we're not developing as a nation enough intellectual capital to compete and maintain our market share and our status. And I say to white America, as we slip because we're not investing 
in our people, white America has the most to lose because white America has 99.9% of the wealth. That's, that's right. Well, you know, you're in an interesting position, Byron, to, as, a, as a black founder, I, I'll just make two observations and then I'd love for you to talk about this. I mean, there are so few people in entertainment that I see making the successful transition. You talked before about skill sets. You sort of accelerate and like, hey, I need a different skill set to do this thing. You've transitioned from successful entertainer to very successful founder of a business in, your, in the same industry you grew up in, very different skill set. And so as a founder, as a black founder of a business in this country, you're uniquely positioned to actually be able to do something of, you know, you have uh, a very net present economic impact that you can create. Jobs, uh, markets, you know, the kinds of things that you talk about with global competitiveness, all of these things are sort of in your wheelhouse. And so I, I just wonder how, how one touches the other. What kind of obligation do you feel as a founder of a very successful business to help advance this very worthy cause that you've just spent the last five minutes talking about? I have, you know, I have an enormous responsibility to do it because A, I love my country, I love my family, and I want my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids to have a phenomenal future. And I'm talking about how we need to look at things strategically and holistically. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm saying to all Americans, especially white America, lean in, lean in. Because this isn't about saving us black people. This is about saving you as well. And this is about saving all of us because divided, we don't have enough gas to get there. That's United, right. we can maintain our dominance and our global market share. That you have to be united. And we have to, we have to take this opportunity and not look at it as a Black Lives you know, donation movement. You know, I've made it very clear. I don't think we should be making donations. Uh, in some ways, I almost consider donations racist in its own way. It's like saying, you're inferior, I'm superior, and you need my hand out to keep your head above water. I don't want your hand out. I want your hand in partnership. There's a big difference. Donations are not sustainable. Investments are forever. We need to invest in all Americans, and we need to develop and position every American to succeed to their fullest potential in order for us to maintain where we are globally. We need to invest in human resources, human capital. I believe that education in America should be free for every American. If you wanna go and get your master's or your PhD, go at Godspeed and send us the bill and we are your biggest supporter because we need your intellectual capital to succeed. You know, if you're not properly educated, in some ways you become a liability and not an asset because right. in many ways we're subsidizing you. Well, I don't want to subsidize you, I want to position you for your greatest success. We need to make that investment and we need to just say, look, listen, go, we need you to fly. We need you to soar. I'm not looking for you to struggle to get through college and then after you come out of college you become a debt slave right you don't need debt slaves i want you to be educated i want you to get a job i want you to be debt free and then you take your paycheck and you become a consumer mm -hmm. and if you're a consumer the economy has a strong foundation i'd rather you work 
to be a consumer than work to pay off student debt. Because being a consumer, you're creating jobs and a stronger economy. And we have enough intellectual capital to maintain our position in this world. I think that's important. I think it's important. I think it's a birthright for every human being to have access to the best medical attention. No one should die because they're not rich and famous. If you have a medical issue, you should have access to it. And I think that's key. And also, I think it's important that everyone has access to capital that's not predatory. Mm -hmm. I started my company for my dining room table 27 years ago. And I own it 100%, not because that was my, my design. No one believed in me. No one wanted to be my partner. No one wanted to invest in me. And the miracle of my company is that the first 15 to 20 years, I couldn't get a bank loan. And I had to go to factors. And I would take my receivables from Coca-Cola and Pepsi and McDonald's and Johnson and Johnson and General Motors. And I say, look, I can't wait 120 days to get my check from them. And I would go to a factor who would give me the money that week. And I had to pay 26, 27% interest. Uh, and the fact that I survived 26% interest is the real miracle. But the real crime was that that wasn't capital I had available to me to provide more jobs in the community. That's right. And, and, I, and I say, if you go audit these banks, you will see that these banks do not make loans to black people. So what they do is they say, well, we, make, we, make, we have a great minority record. Well, then they went in and they redefined the word minority. And now minority happens to also be white women. So when they make loans to white women, they say, look at our minority record. It's amazing. And that's great. Make all the loans you want to white women, but don't use that as a shield to cover up the fact you're not making home loans, car loans, student loans, business loans to black people. And if you actually lend money to people of color, then it changes the game. Now you, you're able to buy a home. You're able to refinance that home. Send yep. your to college. You're able to get a student loan. You're able to, to have a business and employ people in your community because small businesses are the largest employers. We need to really hold the financial institutions accountable to make sure that the flow of capital is balanced because the greatest trade deficit in America is the trade deficit between corporate America and black America. Corporate America is not doing business with black America and corporate America has never done business with black America, which is why you see that wealth disparity. It's not hard to figure out. It's not brain surgery. People know what's going on. The banks aren't lending. The financial institutions aren't investing. And corporate America isn't doing business with us in a fair and equitable way. That's right. Well, and as you've already pointed out in this conversation, it's so short-sighted in the sense that for that, for one America to be competitive in the world, to be successful in the next generation, for you and I to be able to hand off the economic and social baton to our children, the next generation, 
there there has to be a more there has to be one America. There has to be a more unified view. And yet, the thing that occurs to me listening to you is that much of white America may not either acknowledge, know about, or feel some energy to make right this hardwired history that we have going back hundreds and hundreds of years, right? I mean, I, I am the beneficiary of hundreds of years of this disparity. And I feel like unless you acknowledge that, then you can't, from an intellectual honesty point of view, you can't be a part of the solution because you're only looking at it in your lane. You're not looking at the bigger picture. Am I reading this right? Yeah, here? and also it's a simple one. We won't survive. Right. Well, Einstein said it the best. The very definition of, of intelligent life is life that can adapt. We're not adapting. And we have to understand who we are. You know, there was a book written in 1916 by a guy named Madison Grant. And it's the, I think the name of the book was The Passage of the Great Race. And I don't recommend buying it or reading it, but I'm just illustrating that the book was written in 1916, The Passage of the Great Race. And this young guy, Madison Grant, he went to an Ivy League school and he was a lawyer and he was back in New York and he was upset about the immigration that he was witnessing coming into America uh, out of Europe. And he felt that it was diluting, you know, the great white race. And he wrote this book to shut it down, to stop, you know, immigration and to really uh, come down hard, especially on people coming out of Europe. And this young man read the book and said, quote, this book is my Bible. This book is my Bible. That young man was Adolf Hitler. And he used that book as his basis for what he did. As a matter of fact, Hitler gave an interview to the New York Times and said, I don't understand why America is coming down so hard on me. Everything that I know and I've learned about, you know, uh, race control I learned from America. This is what he said. As a matter of fact, Hitler sent his Nazi lawyers to America and said, study the Jim Crow laws that they're putting on the Negroes and come back and use those same laws, restrictive laws, and use them on the Jews. Now get your mind about around that. Not only did we create racism, we exported it all the way to Europe and Hitler and it manifested into the Holocaust. Check it out. The passage of the great race, Madison Grant, Adolf Hitler saying my Bible. We have to understand who we are, that when you are creating that kind of a situation, that it's being picked up and read that way, that it's leading to the death of millions and millions and millions of people around the world, including the Holocaust. At a certain point, you have to say, hey, come on. All right. There's a reconciliation here. There's a reckoning. 
we have to reverse this. We have to understand who we are and what we've done. And we have to put the brakes on and we have to turn this around. Those are facts. Yeah. So who are we that uh, Adolf Hitler is sending his lawyers to study what we've done to the Negroes that you're now going to go take that back to Europe and you're going to do the same thing to the Jews? Okay? This, our history and what we've done to whether it's Native Americans and on and on and on, it's, it's really evil. Now, what we have to do is say, that's not who we are. We're better. And here's how we can reverse it. But you have to admit, this is who you are. That's what it starts with that. And I guess that this leads me, I mean, look, 2020, uh, it's going to go down in history for lots of different reasons. You know, whether it's a global health crisis, whether it's the racial pandemic that was hand in hand with all of that, whether it's the economic divot that this is sort of put in the world's output and activity as a consequence. I, I mean, there's so much that you've just said to unpack, but the one thing that strikes me is, is that you have to be willing to acknowledge the past and what you've learned from that in order to have any hope that you can create impact in the future. And so, you know, as I was thinking about the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many other names that tragically we now need to know and say as part of that acknowledgement, um, I, I just wonder aloud, is this time any different, you know, from your point of view? Do you feel like in 2020, we, we have a shot at actually doing something sustained, something that demonstrates that we've learned, something that is about paying it forward or doing something different than what, we, what we've done in the past? Or do you fear that we will run past this like we have before? I think, you know, if we can let it be a donation movement, uh, I think it will just be a speed bump and you move on. This is an opportunity to uh, really make all of us better, all of us. And this is something that, you know, like I said, we need to make the investment. And if we make the investment, the investment will pay dividends for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, we need police reform, without question. The chokehold the, the choke is just a modern day lynching. Yeah. When you when you saw him put his knee on George Floyd's death, that was a horizontal lynching. He just lynched him on the ground. And America, uh, this is something that happens every day. And it's been happening since day one. Not to mention the millions of Africans that we lost just on the on the trek from Africa to America and all the slaves that were thrown overboard. They couldn't make the trip physically. So yep. this is just genocide. You know, look, I've always said they kill us in the schoolroom by making sure we don't get a proper education. They kill us in the boardroom by making sure we don't have true economic inclusion. They kill us in the courtroom. The attorney general of America under Obama, Eric Holder, said, I have a report that shows that black men are getting 20% longer sentences than white men doing the same crime. They kill us in the courtroom long before you watch them choke us to death in the streets, long before. And you have to address the issues in the schoolroom. You have to address the issues in the boardroom and you have to address the issues in the school and in the courtroom. Those are real issues. Because 
you know, why is Eric Garner standing on the sidewalk selling cigarettes? You, you position him to, to fail. He should have had access to capital so he could own a store on that block instead of standing in front of a store in that block. And the store owner, what, whoever complains, and the police come and choke him in front of us. Mm-hmm. It, it's the schoolroom. It's the boardroom. It's the courtroom. And that's where the genocide is occurring. You, everyone's positioned to fail. Okay. Most people in our community, that is how we are positioned. And at a certain point, they were like, we don't need them. We don't want them. And we don't want, so let's do this. And what's happening is you've got these phones now. And these phones are recording it. Mm-hmm. And these phones are distributing it globally through the internet. It's, you know, now you can't deny it. But this is, for a lot of black people, this is not new. This is now just record it and right. globally distribute it. But the genocide won't work anymore because every, the whole system can implode and the whole system is imploding as Dr. Martin Luther King talks. And as we achieve one America here, one America, the rest of the planet will follow. And when we achieve one planet, then what you've achieved is a slice of heaven right here on earth. That's the test. That is the test. And that's that's the human test. Can we achieve one America, which will create a domino to achieve one planet? And when you achieve one America and then one planet, you will have a slice of heaven right here on earth. Well, you know, one thing that occurs to me again as a, as a founder, I, so I think about um, entertainment studios. I think about what you've created. Uh, I think about, you know, uh, the, the mark that you will leave on this planet as a consequence of what you've built. And what strikes me is the diversity of that programming, right? Whether it's the weather channel, the sports programming, uh, Chappaquiddick, things in different languages, like really having worked for several founders in my life, one thing that's always clear to me is that culture is a really important thing to a founder because that is the uh, imprinting or that's the sort of uh, formative material of how this thing will ultimately grow and survive. And as you're describing, you know, create different kinds of opportunities down the road. How, how have you thought about all these principles we've just spent the last 15, 20 minutes talking about and how they relate to the culture of what you've built and like what your employees should carry in the world. You know, if, if your business will perpetuate, they're going to be the ones that take everything they learn from you and that culture. And that's what they'll grow from. You know, take risk and never stop learning. Uh, you know, Michael Jordan, uh, you know, as a young comedian, I would go play colleges and I played a college. I played at Michael Jordan. I performed at Michael Jordan's college and it was the homecoming. And they had the Four Tops and Paul Anka. <clears throat> and before we started the show, they wanted to say hello to their team. And Michael Jordan and the crowd went ballistic, like a hundred times greater than Byron Allen, the Four Tops and Paul Anka. Like we were a snooze festival. And so, you know, I never stopped. You know, I, I got to meet Michael and got to know him. And Michael came out to L.A. to shoot a movie called Space Jam. 
Mm-hmm. And he lived here in LA for the summer and uh, I hung out with him quite a bit. And uh, we went clubbing, right? And uh, and I noticed his, I was able to see his work ethic and it was so amazing because you know, he would shoot his movie. In the morning, he would like work out, he'd shoot his movie. At lunch, he'd work out some more. And, and then at night, after he shot the movie, he played full on basketball. And uh, and I remember asking him, like, they built, he took out a parking lot at Warner Brothers and a whole parking lot, and they built him a dome. And it was a basketball arena with a full on gym while he yep. shot his Space Jam. And I remember asking Michael, I said, What are you doing here? You know, why, why are you playing basketball every night? At this point, you know, Michael Jordan, you gotta play basketball. And he says, You know, every summer they're studying my moves. That's what they do on the summer. They're studying my moves. Every game I played, every shot I took, everything I did, they're just studying it. And he says, while they're studying my old moves, I'm here developing new moves. So when I show up at the beginning of the season, I'm a new Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. They know the old Michael Jordan. They're not ready for the new one. And that was the summer he developed the fadeaway because they were triple teaming him by that point. Mm-hmm. And he taught himself how to go horizontal with the floor and shoot the bat, shoot the ball and make the basket. It was, you couldn't defend against it. No. And right. So it was, you know, keep learning more, keep pushing, don't be predictable. So mm-hmm. when I come out with a Chappaquiddick or 47 meters down, or I bought the Weather Channel, or I buy ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox affiliates, or I start a streaming service, Local Now, that's an ABOD, you know, and I said, look, you can't be predictable. My competitors don't know. They have no clue. They have zero clue about how I think or what I'm doing. And you have to be multidimensional. You don't want to be one note. And also, I felt it was important as an African-American to send a message to other young African-American kids. I want you to see yourself globally, global. Because a lot of the African-American entrepreneurs didn't, phenomenal, great, whether it's Barry Gordy or John H. Johnson or Bob Johnson or Madam C. Walker, didn't have an opportunity to really be as global as they would have liked to have been. Mm -hmm. And so what I've said is, I don't want you to play just in your neighborhood. I want you to play in the global neighborhood. Yep. So I made it a point when I bought the Weather Channel, that was a very that was a game changer because it's the first time an African American has owned a mainstream media platform. Right? So you have CNN is owned by AT&T. MSNBC is owned by Comcast, NBC, Universal. Um, Fox News is owned by News Corp. And I own the Weather Channel. And this has been voted the most trusted news brand for 10 consecutive years in a row by Harris Paul. Mm -hmm. That's important for some young black kid to see that we, I own a major news outlet that is the most trusted. And you can do something to make me look like an amateur and I want you to do that. When, you know, unfortunately, I'm the only African-American to own ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox affiliates around the country. And that's an important platform because we, we provide local news, as especially as it relates to COVID-19. That's right. 
as a kid, my mother and my grandmother back in Detroit would put me and my uncle, Terrence, who's really like my brother, used to put us in the car and say, let's go drive and see, you know, the rich white neighborhood. Let's go see these beautiful mansions. And my grandmother worked in some of them. And she used to clean them. And she would go, that's where the Ford family lives. And it'd be this beautiful, amazing mansion, the Ford family. And this is where the Dodge brothers and all these industrial families. And she said, and that's where Barry Gordy lives. And when I saw Barry Gordy living in this mansion amongst these super wealthy white people, it changed my perspective. It changed how I saw myself. And I said, wow, there's something that I can do that's different. I don't have to live in the neighborhood I'm living in. And when they said he had an indoor bowling alley and an indoor swimming pool, I thought an indoor swimming pool. You're kidding me? I have to walk 30 minutes to the community center, stand in line, you know, for 30 minutes to jump into a swimming pool with a bunch of pee in it from kids from around the neighborhood. And I thought, no, there's something else I can do here. And I want all kids, especially kids of color, to see me as a beacon and say, you know what? I can go global. And I want you to go global. I don't want you to play just in our small neighborhood. I want you to play globally because there you have an opportunity to get to billions, if not trillions. Okay. And the internet, especially the internet affords you that. Yeah. And you need to take full advantage. A hundred years ago, it was the industrial revolution. And what fueled that was gas and oil. Today it's the digital revolution. As we chase four or five billion connected devices, what's fueling that content, content, content. And you have to really be proficient in it. And we can't produce enough of it. And that's how I see myself is we are to produce content at Allen Media and produce it on the spectrum from A to Z. When I bought the Weather Channel and I went and got the new owner's presentation, they said at the end of the presentation, oh, by the way, you own something called Local Now. And it's the equivalent of owning 210 television stations around the country. And I said, what is it? They said, well, it's proprietary software. It's a technology stack that delivers local news, weather, sports, and traffic geofence to your zip code. Mm-hmm. And they said, it's losing $25 million a year. And you're probably going to want to shut it down. They were trying to get 5 bucks a month or 10 bucks a month for it. I said, wow. I said, I don't think you realize what you just said to me. You just said to me, we took the equivalent of broadcast network TV and put it on the internet where we're providing local news, weather, sports, and traffic geofence to your zip code. That does not exist. I said, not only am I not shutting it down, I'm going to supersize it and I'm going to make, I'm going to make it free local. Now I'm going to make it free and I'm going to add premium content, TV shows, movies, documentaries, concerts. And I want the same relationship I had as a kid watching my local ABC or NBC affiliate where I got my local news, weather, sports, and traffic. And then I got Batman and Bonanza and Gunsmoke and I got I got premium content. I want that same relationship to be transferred to local now so people can get everything for free because free wins. And I remember having dinner one night with Reed Hastings of Netflix and I said, uh, do you who, who, who do you worry about? Who's your competition? He said, YouTube. He said, if they start offering premium content for free, how do I get people to pay me 15 bucks a month?
And I remember thinking, there it is. So now we said, okay, here's local now. Here's an opportunity to do something that's not there. Provide localism and premium content for free. And that's that's our North Star. And that's a that's a global vision. That's that is exactly what I was talking about. That's the kind of thing, uh, and what you were talking about too. That's the difference between a Barry Gordy and Hitsville USA, and what it is that you're actually able to do in the world based on what it is that that you've put together. Um, and Gordy was able to go global because white kids from all over the world love and appreciate Motown and, and consumed it like freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. Of I don't I think that may have surprised him, uh, but he was able to really take it to a global level and accomplish something no one's ever accomplished. Uh, absolutely. I wish uh, I wish for, for his sake that there was an acknowledgement of like how Northern Soul in the UK was basically just a completely stolen spin on what yeah. it was that, you know, he put together. I, one of the coolest things I've ever done when I was writing about music was go visit Hitsville, USA in Detroit. That for me was was a little bit like going to the mountain, you know, and uh, it's uh, it's incredible to think of the kind of opportunities that, you know, what you're building now will create in the future. So, look, I, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but um, I, I know you probably have other things to do. I would love to give you one last button to push here in terms of, you know, for the audience that will view this. What is the one thing more than anything, uh, Byron, that you want them to take away from this conversation and maybe something that they can do that sure. you would like to see them do? Absolutely. And, you know, one note on, on Gordy, you know, he took that Henry Ford mentality and created that assembly line for quality and, and music. And I did the same thing in terms of television. I said, this is a content factory. And I ended up setting up edit bays and I had a day crew and a night crew. And because when my dad started working at Ford, he was on the night crew. My mom used to drop him off because we had one camera, I mean, one car. And so we had one car, so we had to drop him off. So I said, look, when I pitch Verizon on launching seven networks, uh, you know, uh, 10 networks, excuse me, 10 networks, they said, what are you thinking? Uh, I said, how many networks do you have? I said, zero. They go, oh my God, you want to go from zero to 10? I go, what are you thinking? I said, well, you know, my dad worked at Ford Motor Company. My granddaddy worked at Great Lake Steel, and they were very efficient. But when I started working on real people, there were people there at real people, not all of them, out in the field that were trying to figure out how to shoot for two hours to get paid for 12. And I, that wasn't my wire. Yeah. So when we send camera crews and producers uh, to Pebble Beach to shoot the car show, Concourse de Elegance, for our car network, cars.tv. I don't want them to just shoot the car content for cars.tv. I want them to shoot the chefs up there for our cooking channel, recipe.tv. I want them to shoot the resorts up there for our travel channel, mydestination.tv. Shoot what's going on in the pet community for our pet channel, pets.tv. And shoot all the movie stars that come up there for this unbelievable car show, Concourse de Elegance, uh, for our entertainment channel, es.tv. They said, you know what? We've heard a lot of pitches, but we haven't heard one that clever. We're not going to give you 10 networks. We're going to give you six networks. And we made history and launched six networks in a single day because I brought that Henry Ford way of thinking, that blue collar way in which I was raised, be efficient, try and figure out how to put 36 hours in a 24 hour day. And so that's the American way. And that's the same thing we have to do now. Lean in. Right. So to your question, which is a great question, everybody is powerful. 
one individual, one voice has enormous, enormous power. And there's so many ways you can lean in. I think it's very important to register to vote. I think it's very important to vote. I think it's very important to vote early, uh, especially if you are black or Latino. Uh, the black vote is the most powerful vote in the world. And the reason why the black vote is the most powerful vote in the world is because quite often the white vote is split 50-50. And the black vote comes in and is it's the deciding vote, mm -hmm. which is why certain people in America work really hard and invest, invest enormous resources to shut that black vote down because that black vote is the deciding vote and has significant influence on who will be in the White House until the end of time. And that's why folks work really hard to say, we're not interested in this black vote. So black people, you can't vote like you're some old, rich, white woman, and you're gonna show up on November 3rd thinking you're gonna get in and out in 10 minutes. You're gonna be in line six, seven, eight hours and then be told at the end of eight hours, you're in the wrong place. And that's by design. And it's by design because you have enormous power. Exercise your power. Don't ever let go of your power. People died for your right to vote. You must register, you must vote. And if you're really smart, vote early. Vote like you're black, don't vote like you're white. White people can show up on November 3rd. Black people, you gotta get there a month early. That's just the fact of life in America right now. That's really important. Also, we need to participate in the census. Black, Latino, gotta participate because that's gonna control the flow of over $1,500,000,000. That impacts our schools, our hospitals, our municipalities, everything. And there's a reason why this administration is cutting that short and not properly polling and figuring out you know, who's who and, and, and getting the survey in order. I believe that God willing with Biden and Kamala Harris winning, uh, hopefully we will look at redoing the census again in 2021 when people aren't so concerned about who the administration is and who they're trying to, you know, get and you know, get them out of the country or whatever it is. We need to make sure we have a proper census so that flow of capital is being handled properly. Um, you have the you have the ability to donate. I think donations are important. They have power, especially with the internet. A lot of people will look at President Barack Hussein Obama and say, yeah, he was the first African-American president. And that's true. And I'm very proud of that. But he's also, when they look back 50, 100 years from now, they're going to say he was the first internet president, the first internet president, because he raised over a billion dollars. And a lot of Democrats never raised over a B. He's one of the few to raise over a billion dollars. Average donation was 80 bucks. So the GoFundMe and the internet is very powerful. That's right. And you need to really lean in and not just vote, but five bucks, 10 bucks, put, put it in and say, hey, I want you to have plenty of capital to win because you can't win without capital. 
And the other thing is, you, it's not just the White House you want to lean in on. You want to lean in on all politicians. And you want to say to these politicians, I have an agenda. Right? I supported President, I supported Senator Barack Obama. And I told Senator Obama that I was, dis uh, President Obama, I was disappointed in him. And I was disappointed in him because I wanted him to do a couple of things. I wanted him to audit the banks and see if they were lending money to black people. I wanted him to make sure that of the one plus trillion dollars in government worker pension fund money, people who work for the United States government have paid into a pension fund that's over a trillion dollars. Well, little or none of it is managed by black people and little or none of it is invested in our communities. Mm -hmm. So that is, that is wrong. That's systemic racism. And I wanted him to lean in on that. So you have to lean in on your politicians and understand that politicians are nothing more than temporary hired help. And as temporary hired help, you must give them your agenda and give them a timeline to carry out your agenda. And when Obama didn't carry out my agenda, I became very critical of him. Because when Freddie Gray was murdered by the police officers in Baltimore, the, the kids there protested. And when they protested, Obama called them thugs. And I said, you know, you're out of line. Uh, Tupac taught us thugs. That's, that, you know, that's the acronym for the hate you give. Mm -hmm. You have positioned these kids to fail. You didn't get them a proper education. You didn't get them jobs. You didn't get them mentorship. Well, I don't see thugs. What I see is the hate you get. And before you criticize them, lean in and position them for success. We have to hold these politicians accountable. And remember, we are a democracy and they work for us. They serve us. They are here to make us happy. And when they don't, you must quickly, swiftly eliminate. Like, bye, go stage left. We're going to replace you. We must replace them immediately with people who understand and carry out our agenda. You can also mentor these children. Mentors are important. You know, if you get in there and you can tutor them, make sure that they get a, help them get an education, help them get a proper education. Educa you don't get a President Barack Hussein Obama without Harvard in his resume. You don't get Ken Frazier, the head of Merck, African-American without Harvard in his resume. You don't get Ray McGuire, the head of chairman of Citibank, without Harvard in his resume. Okay, so we have to make sure each and every kid has a proper education. One of my favorite little scenarios was I would go to Maui every year, and when we would, I would go pretty much the same hotel, and the same families would show up at this at these hotels at this hotel. And one year, I was you know, in the cabana and I was, you know, there and there's this lady who's always there every year. And I got to talking and speaking to her over the years and her husband had, you know, markings on his arm because he was uh, a victim of the Holocaust and he was in a concentration camp. And we started talking about that many years earlier. And one day she said to me, one year she said to me, you know, I almost didn't make it back here with you. And I go, why is that? And she said, because I was having heart problems. 
and nobody wanted to operate on this little old Jewish lady. And I go, why? She goes, because I'm too old and they didn't want to open me up. And I go, really? And she goes, yeah. And I go, what happened? She said, well, my son said to me, mom, why don't you call uh, Mike? And she goes, little Mikey, who I used to give cookies and milk to? And he goes, yeah, mom, but he's not so little anymore. He's grown up <laughs> and he is the head of cardiology at a major you know, hospital. And he's one of the greatest heart surgeons ever. She goes, little Mikey? She goes, yeah, mom, little Mikey. So she, she calls him up and she's like, hi, little Mikey. I don't want to bother you. This is Mrs. Weissman. You know, I uh, just want to let you know I'm having a problem with my heart. Uh, and I'm just kind of, you know, just want to let you know. And he goes, email me the, uh, and he said, you know, by the way, you're not bothering me. Don't ever worry about it. And I love your cookies and milk when I was growing up. He said, email me your, uh, your records right away. And she emailed him the records. And he called her back right away and said, get on the next plane smoking. I'm going to do this operation on you. And he did it. And he successfully did it and added years to her life. And right there, you, I had that epiphany. Thank God little Mikey wasn't a crackhead. <laughs> Thank God little Mikey was positioned to succeed. Yeah. Helping little Mikey succeed is saving you. That's right. And that's how we should look at every human being on this planet, especially here in America, because we have a country full of little Mikeys and every little Mikey and little Jennifer has to succeed because that's the right thing to do. That's making us better as human beings. And it's actually saving you. That's exactly right. Now we just got to get people to see it that way. Look, Byron, I am so grateful to you for your time, the generosity of spirit, the, the power uh, in some of these messages and just for sharing your stories with us today, it was super powerful. So uh, I, I am very grateful to you for, for the time. And uh, this was a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Melanie Parker. Thank you for joining us for the search for racial equity. Let us march on till victory is won.